0: Father, we're in need of instruction from your word. Lord, we're in need to be shaped by the truth of your word. And so we ask that you'd humble us now to receive your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would bring fruit in our lives. And Lord, I pray you'd help me to preach faithfully and clearly that Jesus would be exalted to, to instruct us by the truth of your word. Lord, we ask together that we would be led to deeper worship of you and obedience to your word by what we hear today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, just a few weeks ago, a sold-out crowd of almost 65,000 people gathered in Cincinnati, Ohio to watch a Monday night football game where the Cincinnati Bengals took on the Buffalo Bills. I wasn't watching that game at that time. I was doing other things, but one of my sons came and got me to alert me to something that happened on the field. I turned on the television and realized that an entire sold-out crowd that was standing on their feet making a lot of noise in a game that had playoff implications. Two of the top teams in the league playing had come to a standstill. Total silence. And I saw, probably like many of you did, the replay of one of the defensive backs for the Buffalo Bills, DeMar Hamlin, who after tackling an opponent on the field, got up and then suddenly collapsed and hit the ground. And as the trainers and the medical personnel rushed the field to perform life-saving CPR, Everyone sat in silence. The word spread quickly on social media. The word spread throughout the country. And all of a sudden, millions of people are sitting there watching, wondering in that replay, did we just see an NFL player die in the middle of a game? It was a sobering moment. It was one that lasted for quite some time. Uh, Thankfully, they were able to resuscitate DeMar Hamlin. But for the days following, many of us were glued to the headlines trying to figure out how he was. There were even ESPN broadcasters praying on the air for him in that moment. One human life at stake caught the attention of millions of people. It was a sobering moment that made you want to hug your kids, to call your mom or dad. It reminded you of just how precious life is. You see, millions of people coming to a standstill, paying attention to one human life, was a picture of how sacred human life is. You see, the sanctity of human life tells us human life is sacred. Why? Because human life, all human life, is created by God in His image for His glory, full of value, displaying His worth. And therefore, is worthy of being treated with honor and dignity and respect. Well, today we recognize, you've probably picked up on the theme already, we recognize the sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and we gather with, together this morning and look at this topic along with a multitude of other churches across the country and even our North Carolina Baptist churches that are gathering here today. Now, we've spent the better part of the last two years in the book of Genesis. We're in the very beginning of the Bible, When creation is recorded in Genesis chapter 1, we see that human beings are created in the image of God. That's what the sanctity of life is founded on, that all life is created by God and belongs to Him. He's the Lord of all. He's the author of life. And therefore, all human life, male and female, every ethnicity and nationality, every human life, regardless of socioeconomic status regardless of where you're born, regardless of education, regardless of physical or mental disability, all human life is to be honored. In the womb, in nursing homes, in hospice care, all human life is worthy of being treated with dignity and care and respect. But on Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, we recognize that there is a certain group of human beings that are not receiving that type of care in our country. They're not receiving full protection under the law. Not only is there a failure to protect their lives, but in most states in our country, including in our state here in North Carolina, there are laws on the books that make it legal to kill them. It's the lives of babies in the womb the unborn. And so today churches across this land together with one voice speak up for these little ones and speak out against the horror that is abortion. We recognize this today because today marks the 50th anniversary of the Supreme Court decision of Roe versus Wade 50 years ago today. It's a decision that held that women in the U.S. have the fundamental and constitutional right to have an abortion. It was a decision that led to an estimated 63 million plus babies over the last 50 years being aborted in our country. A massive amount of human life deliberately and intentionally killed. That's almost 19%, 63 million is almost 19% of the current United States population. 63 million would fill up the population of this state six times over a massive amount of human life. But brothers and sisters in the Lord, I stand up to preach this year recognizing there is a new day in our country legally. This past summer on June 24th, 2022, the Supreme Court issued its opinion in the Dobbs decision stating in clear and an unmistakable language We hold that Roe must be overruled. It was a day many of you never thought you'd see. Some of you in this church were old enough and living then when Roe versus Wade was decided, and you may have thought this was it. Many of us, like me, that's all we knew our entire life, the entire time we've been alive. As a church, we can thank God for this decision. It is an unmistakable good we can rejoice without reservation and thank God for answering the prayers of his people and thank him for the countless lives that have already been saved no doubt will be saved following this decision it's good it's it's right for us to thank God to praise him and while we can rejoice in this decision we know that the work is far from over, that a new chapter has been turned. There's lots of good work that we can do. And so it is good and is right for us as the people of God to take time and to see what he has said in his word about how we can seek to love and to protect and to see the lives of these preborn image bearers of God. Now, if you haven't picked up on already, this sermon is different from what I normally do, where we go through books of the Bible and preach verse by verse, we've spent two years in Genesis, Well, really next week we'll kick off First Thessalonians. That'll be the 16th book of the Bible that we've been going through since we've replanted this church in 2015. That's what we plan to do next week. But today is a topical sermon on the sanctity of human life, particularly focusing on the topic of abortion. Let me be clear, when you hear this topic, uh, it's not controversial in this room amongst our members. It is not a controversial topic. We just read what we all have agreed to in our statement of faith. I understand it is a very controversial topic, and even after the Dobbs decision in June, a very controversial topic in our society. And so if you're here this morning and you're one of our guests, I'm so glad that you're here. I want you to understand when we talk about this issue and we seek to get clarity and to speak clearly from God's Word, uh, some may hear this and think, well, this is focusing on a controversial issue and it sounds heartless. And I want you to know this is not a heartless sermon. I imagine in a crowd this size, there are people who have been affected by abortion, maybe those who've had an abortion or been party to one, and I want you to know as Christians uh, we don't gather this morning to hammer you it's not what we've come to do we love you we welcome everyone who's come in this morning we do want to be clear and i don't know that you'll hear this anywhere else besides a christian church we do want to be clear on what god's word has said that abortion is sinful it violates god's commands it is a horrific evil it is not an unforgivable sin you see, we proclaim a good news found in Jesus Christ. We have good news to preach that God forgives sin for all who would repent and put their trust in Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death on the cross to pay for sin and His resurrection from the dead. There is forgiveness, and some of you have repented of that very sin. And may you be reminded this morning that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The blood of Jesus Christ has set you free, and you walk in freedom. We preach a big gospel that forgives big sins and we find joy in this Christ who has come to redeem and to save us and may you be reminded of that grace found in Jesus this morning if you're here today and you're not a Christian I'm so glad you're here you very well may disagree with everything I say up here this morning you very well may disagree with what we agree on as a church that we just read and I want you to know we do not hate people who disagree with us we love you we're glad that you're here I would hope to persuade you this morning, I would ask you to keep an open mind, and I'm certainly happy to speak with you. I'll be right down here afterwards, I'd be happy to answer any questions you have from this sermon, as would any of our pastors who are at the door. But with that, this morning, we're going to spend our time looking at Psalm 139. It's a very important passage to help us understand what it is in the womb. That's what we have to be clear on, the Bible is clear on that. We're going to look at that this morning, because the answer to that question is a necessary sets us on a necessary trajectory for how we must respond. Go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 139. That's the passage I'll base out of this morning. That's found on page 521 in your pew Bible. Take that pew Bible right in front of you. If you don't have a Bible, use that this morning, Psalm 139. And if you don't own a Bible, please take that Bible home with you as our gift to you. We're going to be in Psalm 139 this morning in a simple two-part outline. We're going to launch out of this simple two-part outline. Number one, what is in the womb? Number two, what should we do about this? Number one, what is in the womb? Because that's what the conversation about sanctity of human life begins with. And number two, what should we do about this as a church? Well, a central part of debate surrounding the issue of abortion deals with the question of what is in the womb. And often the humanity of the unborn is denied. As I mentioned, our very laws here in the state of North Carolina deny the humanity of unborn children, only providing restrictions once an unborn baby reaches 20 weeks in the womb. That's almost midway through the second trimester. To give perspective to that, it's 20 weeks. Just a mile down there at the hospital, the lives of preborn 20 excuse me, prematurely born 24 week old babies are being saved with advances in technology and medicine. At 20 weeks, up to 20 weeks. The humanity is being denied of these little ones. Now advances in technology and science have given us a great deal of information about what happens in the womb. It certainly was a mystery in the time of David in terms of exactly what was going on, yet there's clarity in the psalm of what it is that's in the womb. We've got all sorts of information. now. I read this week that when a child reaches 15 weeks in the mother's womb, that unborn baby's heart has already beat more than 15 million times. It's heart beating. In the womb, doctors can tell whether a baby boy or girl is right or left-handed, based on which thumb the baby prefers to suck. We have technology now that lets us see these things. Moreover, we now know that unborn babies can feel pain inside the womb by 20 weeks. You see, these advances in technology have shown clearly what's recorded in the pages of the Bible, that what's present in the womb is a living human being. And even before we had these advances in modern science and technology, the testimony throughout the pages of the Bible is sufficient, sufficient for us to know with certainty and clarity what it is that's in the womb. David proclaims this in Psalm 139, a human life is there made in the image of God, and therefore we should consider how to treat such little ones. In this psalm, David, he's meditating on the the love of God. He's in awe of how much God knows him and loves him. If you look there in verse 1, he states the theme of the entire psalm in verse 1, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You see, David's praising God. He's marveling at God's infinite knowledge. We sang this morning that God's omniscient, meaning he is all-knowing. There's nothing that God does not know. Now, let me read through verses 1 through six, to give us some context for this psalm, starting in verse one. Actually, there in the heading, to the choir master, a psalm of David. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in, behind and before, and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Verses 1 through 6, the context. David is praising the all-knowing God. God is omniscient. He's marveling at all that God knows. And he's saying, the Lord knows everything there is to know about me. Let's continue reading in verses 7 through 12, we see that God is not only all-knowing, He's not only omniscient, He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. You and I are here right now and not somewhere else, but God is here right now, and He is everywhere at the same time. In verses 7 through 12, David's praising God that He sees everything. Look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. You see, David is overwhelmed with the thought that there is nowhere that he could go where God would not be there. See, God is a spirit. He's not like you and I, a person that's just confined to one place. He's everywhere all the time. And David is marveling in this truth. God's with him all the time, even in total darkness. God's there and sees and knows exactly what is happening. When things get dark, you and I don't know what's happening. We can't read in the dark. If you take your Bible and go to a dark room, you won't be able to see the words on the pages. Don't drive tonight with your headlights off. You will not be able to see where you're going. Not only we get a ticket, but it's dangerous to drive with your headlights off. Some of you have been up to the mountains, like I've been to Linville Caverns, and they take you deep into a cave in the depths of the earth, and they take you back to a room where there is no light except for the lights that they have strung up, and they tell you that in just a moment they're going to shut the lights off, and they tell you to put your face, excuse me, your hand in front of your face. And they turn the lights off in that room, and you cannot see your hand this close to your face. David is saying the darkness is as light to God. There's no one like him. He sees everything. He knows everything. He's everywhere all the time. David marvels. In other words, there's, there's no place where God does not see. He sees, he knows, he loves, he cares. And the Apostle Paul picks up marveling on the same type of concept in the New Testament book of Romans in chapter 8, verse 38, where he's marveling in the truth. For all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, nothing can separate you from the love of of Christ. God has made Himself known in Jesus. God has drawn near in His presence through Jesus. God knows you, and God only knows those, meaning in a relationship, who know Jesus. Paul says in Romans 8.38, "'For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us,' meaning Christians,' From the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's marveling in who God is in Jesus. It's what we do as we gather and sing and hear God's word read every week that in Christ God has drawn near to us to know us, that Jesus, the eternal Son of God, came down from heaven, emptying himself, lowering himself, humbling himself to live among us, humbling himself even to the point of death on the cross, to pay for our sins, that we might forg- be forgiven, that in Christ God would get sin out of the way so we could be reconciled to the God who created us and live in fellowship, in relationship with Him. We, we get together on Sunday mornings, the day that Jesus got up from the dead, marveling that in Christ and His resurrection from the dead, we too have new life, a life with God. You see, David looked forward to that day where you could be known and know the inescapable love of God through Jesus Christ coming to bring that. You see, there's nowhere you can go to get away from God. Christian, there's nowhere you can go to get away from His love. In Christ, He knows you, He sees you, He loves you, He cares for you, and that changes us. David continues to marvel in this truth in verse 13, and he uses this illustration of darkness. He continues on with the theme, but he points to a particularly dark place, a type of cave, kind of like limbo caverns deep in the earth, a, a type of cave. He's comparing the depths of the earth even to a mother's womb. God saw him even way back in that dark place. Look at verse 13. "'For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together,' In my mother's womb, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. In the dark place of his mother's womb, David's saying, God saw me there. All of this darkness, it makes the point, you knew me and you loved me before I was ever born. Even before his mother was aware that she was with a child in the womb, God knew and saw him and loved him and cared for him. You see, being in the womb is out of sight. That's why in verse 15, David refers to it as this secret place that's hidden, and he makes a similar point there using the metaphorical language of depths of the earth, again, a type of of cave. It's a poetic expression there for a, a dark and secret place. He paints the picture that being in the womb is being out of sight, almost like being buried underground, concealed in a dark place, yet the whole time God saw him and knew him and loved him. In verse 16, all the days of his life, he says, were written in God's book, a picture of God planning the days of his life, even before the days of his life came to be, there in the darkness of the womb, even before his mother knew she was pregnant. God knew him and was loving him and caring for him. Now, God not only saw him in his mother's womb, but God was at work there. There's an operation that was happening there. David highlights that God knows me because He's the one who made me. He's the one who formed me. There in verse 13, David says God was active, forming my inward parts. He knitted me together in the womb. He marvels, I am fearfully and wonderfully made, made in the image of of God. And meaning here that every human being that has ever existed is handcrafted by God himself, fearfully and wonderfully made. God doesn't just churn human beings mindlessly out of some like factory assembly line, rather personally handcrafts every single person who's ever lived. But brother and sister, that should give you great comfort this morning. You're not a mistake. You're God's idea. Life was given to you by him. With that, he gives you a wonderful purpose, or at least calls you to that, to be a worshiper of him, to find delight and joy in knowing him and being known by him. Each person is fearfully and wonderfully designed and created by God, the creator of the universe himself. And this isn't just true of David. God formed and knit together every person who was ever born. The babies and mothers wombs right now in this room, God's idea, Him forming them, knitting them together. Now, something interesting about this passage, notice the the personal and the possessive pronouns that are used here. In verse 13, David speaks of my inward parts. He's distinguishing those were my inward parts in the womb. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Verse 15, my frame when I was being named. He's distinguishing that was his body inside of his mother's body. In other words, there's a continuity between the David who wrote this psalm, King David, and the David that was in his mother's womb, a continuity of life from conception all the way to the point that he's writing this psalm. What's in the womb? David says clearly. Again, God's Word is sufficient. It was me. It was my frame, my body. God knew me there. He loved me there. He cared for me there, God knew him as king. God knew him as a preborn child. God's word is sufficient to answer for us when does human life begin? At conception. Fully human in the image of God at the moment of fertilization, conception. We see clear testimony in the Bible that when it comes to the question and the decision of abortion, Two lives, at least, are in view, mother and baby. Certainly others are affected. But two lives are in view, mother and baby. No one owns a human being. I'm a dad. I do not own my children. I'm their parent. Any time in the history of our country that people have thought that they could own another human being, it has led to horrendous evil. God owns human life. As a parent, he so graciously gives that to us and charges us with the responsibility to love, to provide, to care, and to protect. We see clear testimony here in this language in verses 13 through 16, describing God forming a living human being in the womb. Now, this is one place, among many others in scriptures, two years ago, I took this sermon time to kind of go through a number of different passages. I'm not going to do that this morning. I just want to focus on Psalm 139. I think it sufficiently and clearly answers what's in the womb, and I want to jump from there. Answering the question of what is in the womb leads to direction for a second question. What should we do? Part two of our outline this morning, if you taking notes, what should we do? Well, I take a Sunday to preach a topical sermon dealing with abortion the sanctity of human life. Let me be clear with you. It's not easy as a preacher, as a pastor to write these sermons. It would be easier just to go on to 1 Thessalonians. Not an easy topic to preach on. It's one you, you want to be clear on. Tell you what though, it's an honor to preach on because it's clear in God's Word. And maybe even for some of you, it's not easy to listen to. So why take a Sunday to give ourselves to considering this topic. There are many issues we could deal with in society. And to be clear, our church denominational calendar has things, all different types of Sundays. And were I not an expositional preacher preaching the books of the Bible, maybe I would do more of those. When we think about all the issues we could speak to, and we do speak to, we have lots of different arenas here besides Sunday morning. We pray. And the Sunday mornings, we pray on Sunday evenings, we share things on Sunday evenings, we have equipping hours, all sorts of book club discussions and Bible study. Groups, many issues we can speak to and do speak to, and no question the issue of the sanctity of human life is larger than just abortion itself. But make no mistake, abortion is a tremendous moral issue that I understand we must address. The killing of pre born children protected by the laws of our state. Promoted by the laws of our state, the great crime of murder, the sixth commandment, something that is evil, being called something good. And if you stand up for life, something good, you will be called evil, likely by some. This is a tremendous problem. Abortion is the leading cause of death in our neighborhood. Right around the corner, what I'm told now, especially after the laws changed in other states. What I'm told now, the busiest abortion clinic in the Southeast, right around the corner. This is the leading cause of death in our neighborhood. In other words, it's an urgent issue, a topic I think we should give attention to. There are some very clear steps here. Sometimes there's problems in society, and we don't know what to do with them. Those who give their time studying, getting master's degrees and doctorates in those issues don't necessarily have clear proposals. Politicians, lawmakers don't often have clear proposals this is a very clear issue with clear direction of steps that we can take, and I think we must take to provide full protection under the law for these little ones. Brothers and sisters, God sees and loves the unborn, and if we're going to be like him it means be godly, to be like him, we too must see and love these precious little ones created in His' image. So in this final section, I want to give us two. Basic applications to consider pray and work. Expand on those in just a moment. Pray and work. If we see and care for the unborn, we must pray and we must work for their full protection. First, we ought to pray. It's the driving force of our ministry, the driving force of the Christian life, to pray to the God of the universe who invites us in Jesus Christ, his son, to lift up requests to him. Brothers and sisters, let's continue to pray that parents would choose life. Let's continue to pray for Christians and local churches and our pregnancy care centers to care welfare and support these mothers who choose life, who find themselves in difficult situations. May we reach out with compassion and tender care and practical help. Pray that we would continue to support life from the womb to the tomb. Again, sanctity of Human Life, lots of Different ways that we can live that out. Pray for abortion laws to change in our state and in our country, that the preborn will be treated justly and receive the protection that is due them. I've asked this question before, but Oakhurst Baptist Church: If God answered our recent prayers, both here at church and in your personal prayer life, if God answered those recent prayers about abortion, what would change? whose lives would be saved, what mothers would be ministered to and receive care, what fathers would be ministered to and encouraged to take right and good responsibility for their children. Brothers and sisters, let's not give up on praying. Let's not just pray small prayers. Let's pray bold prayers, asking God to work. Most of the time, I want to spend on some work that we can do. So number two, we should work for the full protection of the unborn. We should work for the full protection of the Lord. Pray and work. Being pro-life, it means that we love, we protect, we defend, we share the love of Christ. And as a pastor, let me tell you, I am encouraged by how I see this local church doing this. Sometimes it will be, uh, the the, the accusation will be lobbed at Christians. Well, all you care about Christians, you're just pro-birth, you're not pro-life. I think in this very local church, I see that proven not to be true. There aren't very many weeks that go by where I don't hear something. that something that you are doing that is good. I'm encouraged by the work I see very members of this local church doing with the Queen City Pregnancy Resource Center and helping get a new PRC started here in town, giving of time and resources. Some of you are serving with Christian Adoption Resources and adopting through that. A, A wonderful organization under our North Carolina Baptist Convention that we got to hear from the director, Kevin Qualls, on a Sunday evening back in the spring. Some of you have adopted years ago, some of you weeks ago. Some of you right now are in the process of trying to adopt. Some of you have served as foster parents, and some of you are doing that right now, even this morning. Members of our church are working right now with a young teenage woman to help her through an unplanned pregnancy. Yesterday at the marriage conference, I had a member of our church come up to me and share with me that she had an opportunity on Friday to speak with a woman who was planning to get an abortion and to counsel her and encourage her to choose life, at which point she seems to have changed her mind as choosing life. That was was Saturday I heard that. I'm encouraged as a pastor by what I see and what I hear going on here in this church. I thank God for the work I see of our members who are reaching out with compassion to show the love of Christ and His mercy and to point to Him as the only hope. And I say, O Cursed Baptist Church, keep going, keep at it, keep up the good work by God's grace. I think there's many things we can do, like what I just mentioned, but I want to focus in on how I think things have changed since June. We're in a new day here in our country. It's important to recognize the importance of justice and law as it pertains to this issue. And since we're in a new day, I want to focus the application, really a laser beam focus on the application here, on how our perspective should shift. Life is different. The country is different. The opportunity is different since the Supreme Court decision back in June. Well, how should Christians think about laws being changed. It's a good question for us to consider. Why should we care about laws in society? Some people may think, well, I don't want to get caught up in politics. I don't want to get caught, maybe it's even outside of your realm of knowledge and you feel unable to think clearly or to know what to do on that. It's a good time to grow and to learn and to consider how we should seek to work together. Now, while the work of being pro-life, it involves more than just laws being changed, it certainly is not less than that. It's not less than that. Laws matter. We must overlook, we must not overlook, rather, what must be done. And I say what, what must be done for justice in our legal system to protect, fully protect, under the law, the preborn. Now, much of what we considered in previous sermons had to do with where we were. A lot of Scripture's commands pertain to the individual promote life, protect life, choose life. Don't have an abortion, Uh, give that baby the life, the opportunity to live the life that God has created for that little child to live. But with the decision from this past summer, the Supreme Court, the implications have broadened, and I think we should consider public application. I asked one of the members of this church this week to write up a one-pager for me, to give me some thoughts. He had some excellent thoughts, and much of what I share this morning is shaped by how he thinks with legal training. Now, much of what we considered in previous sermons at previous times speaks to the individual, but I think there are some things publicly we need to consider. There are many good things we may do, but there are some good things we must do. There are many good things government may do. Government can decide to do all kinds of things in education and things like that that aren't necessarily contained in the pages of the Bible, but there are some directions and commands that governments must do given there in the Bible. That's what I want us to think about this morning. Let me point to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. We went through this early on in our series in Genesis. Genesis 9, 6 says, "...whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image." This is a key verse for understanding the role of civil government. Genesis 9, 6 comes in the context of a command given to uh, the covenant with Noah. This command, it spreads universally worldwide to all human beings, not to just those who put their faith in God. And this passage, it certainly shapes the role of civil government to protect life and to punish those who harm innocent human life. Similarly, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in Romans 13 picks up on this principle when specifically talking about human government. Government was not the idea of our founding fathers. Government is not the idea of, of society. Government is God's institution, His invention, His idea, His creation to serve His purposes. And Romans 13 helps us know that. Let me read Romans 13, verse 1 and verse 4. The Apostle Paul says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Again, human government, an institution created by God. Down in verse 4, speaking of this institution, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Civil government ordained by God all the way back to Genesis chapter 9. Elaborated on in Romans chapter 13, as a servant of God, given the sword, meaning authority, to protect human life in its most basic function. What should a government do? Protect its citizens. That's what governments exist for. That's why throughout history, governments have formed armies to protect from those who would try to kill their citizens. Doing things to provide for and protect citizens is the basic role of government. Sam Renahan, in his book, The Mystery of Christ, puts it like this. In the Noahic Covenant, human societies, therefore, have two basic and related jobs to preserve life and to preserve the family. Mankind is to be fruitful and multiply. Society, man looking out for man, should promote human fruitfulness and multiplication. And that multiplication takes place in the context of families. As a result, any society or government that corrupts the family or murders the innocent, is a government and direct treason and disobedience to the God of the universe. They are abusing the sword entrusted to them by turning it on the innocent rather than the guilty. Government may do many different things, but there are some things governments must do, and Scripture directs that governments must protect the lives of their citizens. Now, we understand that not everything in God's Word makes its way into law. We even proclaim this morning in our statement of faith, children should obey your parents. It's from Ephesians 6. Uh, Children, uh, you likely, sadly, will find yourself disobeying your parents this week. We don't have a law on the books in the city of Charlotte for that. We're not to let unwholesome words proceed from our mouth, Ephesians 4, 29. We might have already broken that this morning on the way to church or getting ready this morning. There's not a book on the law for that where a charlotte Mecklenburg police officer is coming to come arrest you for violating Ephesians 4.29. So, of course, we're not saying every command in Scripture makes its way into civil government. But do not murder, it's a good thing when it works its way into laws. And I think it's not optional. It's a must. It's a very basic form according to Genesis 9 and Romans chapter 13. As Christians, we should care certainly about individual private decisions to conform to God's commands to not kill the innocent unborn. As Christians, we should also join with other Christians to promote a government that is just, that is responsible for the most basic task assigned to it of protecting the lives of its citizens. Now, I recognize that when talking about laws and the political process, some may grow uncomfortable and wondering, are we getting political? Well, there's a difference between politicizing an issue, which sadly often does happen with politicians and abortion. There's a difference between politicizing an issue and recognizing there are necessary political implications, meaning laws that need to be passed, made, and therefore the need for lawmakers who will make just laws. We don't live in Russia or China or North Korea where we simply just have laws made by governing officials and they can be unjust and there's nothing that we can do or say. God has given us freedom in the United States of America and we should be good stewards of the democracy that's been entrusted to us. In other words, we have an opportunity to say something and to do something given to us by God and therefore an opportunity to do what is right. I think about this past weekend, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. I think about his stand for just laws that people created in the image of God would be treated justly, not discriminated or killed based on the color of their skin and churches throughout the land. Maybe including this one. I say maybe because I wasn't alive then, but I would guess probably this one. Remain silent didn't say anything. It's easy to be silent. Change doesn't come through silence. Forgiveness does not come through silence. Even healing for breaking God's commandments doesn't come through silence, but rather by looking at God's Word, asking for His help to fall in line with it. Brothers and sisters, with the overturning of Roe versus Wade this past summer, we now have an opportunity The decision being taken out of the hands of judges and kicked back over to the citizens, which means people will decide, which means you will decide the laws on this. It's a wonderful opportunity. I praise God for the first time in my life, just the opportunity to engage the legislative process on these issues. The fight for life won't end at laws being changed, but certainly we don't skip over that and try to address other things when something that is so clearly wrong and evil remains on the books. The overturning of this decision didn't happen just out of nowhere, but rather God's people, through decades of prayer and action, God blessed those efforts. They engaged the political process, meaning generations before me. They didn't give up when things seemed like it would never change. And we would do well to learn a lesson from that generation and to not grow weary, to not be silent, to not give up. We should continue to engage the process for laws to be changed to where unborn children are treated justly and provided full protection under the law. The fact is the laws speak. They have always speak. They always serve a teaching purpose. And God, for the restraint of evil and for the furtherance of good, has placed government here to teach society on a very basic level, even unredeemed people, in God's common grace, teaching society basic things through law: what's right, what's wrong, what we should do, and what we must not do. While we thank God and rejoice that Roe versus Wade's been overturned, we should know nothing has changed legally in the state of North Carolina. The laws remain the same here up until 20 weeks. Babies can legally be aborted. That is an extreme position. That may sound to us like normal because that's all we've known going up. That is an extreme position in the world right now. Most of Europe does not allow abortions up until 15 weeks. We're at 20 weeks. It's not like North Carolina. Oh, we're kind of moderate right now. No, this is an extreme position that needs to be changed. We should pray and work for this change. We should pray and seek to, as citizens, send legislators to Washington, D.C. and to Raleigh that will protect the lives of the pre-born. We must not shy away from difficult issues. We should ask for God's help. Is this taking us away from our mission as a church to make disciples, to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth? I don't think so. I imagine people in the 1960s might have been saying that and opposing civil rights. I think it's part of us loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. It is good and right, brothers and sisters, to take a Sunday to consider how we can pray and work for the glory of God, take courage in the Lord, and as we pray and as we work to be those who shine the light of Christ into darkness. Where else will you hear what you heard this morning from God's Word and what we should do? Nowhere besides a Christian church. You won't hear it anywhere else. You really won't. Only Christians, I believe, are going to stand up and share this truth about God and about the people He's created. Let's be those who shine the light of Christ in the darkness. Let's be those who proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and that are zealous for good works that point to the truth of the gospel. We serve the one who paid for sin. We serve the one who, through who his new life and raising from the dead, gives new life to all who trust in him. We serve a God as full of love and mercy and care, certainly loves and sees the unborn, and so should we. Brothers and sisters, just as I mentioned at the beginning, a million people a few weeks ago, pausing, praying, watching, worrying, about Damar Hamlin. One life. His life was important, precious, grown men, some of the toughest in our nation, brought to tears, down on one knee. Who knows that they prayed very much before then, but they were praying there because intrinsically we know human life matters. God created all human life in His image and for His glory. In that same spirit, may we pause and pray and consider God's glory and the sanctity of the human life, which is His idea and His creation. Let's do that now. I'm going to give us a moment of silence just to pray. Good chance to pray and to pause and to ask God to help you respond to His Word properly, and then let me close us out in prayer. Father in heaven, we are in need of wisdom from your word, or whatever wisdom that we presently have, even as a church, Lord, may we be humbled by it, that what do we have that we did not receive? Salvation and forgiveness of sins was certainly not our doing, Lord. It was all by your grace, all by your kindness and your compassion and your care in Jesus and your loving pursuit of us. Any obedience in our life directly because of the presence of your Holy Spirit within us causing us to know your commands, and to give us an ambition and desire to please you and to keep them. And so, Lord, we ask for more. We ask for deeper worship. We ask for a deeper knowledge of you, a deeper knowledge of your word, a deeper ambition to bring you praise and glory, deeper obedience to your commands, deeper concern for the things that you're concerned about, more passion for what you're passionate about. And God, that we would hate the things you hate. Lord, we want to be like you. We thank you so much for what you've done for us as a church in Jesus Christ. All that we have truly is found in Christ. And so, Lord, as we close out this worship service together, may you remind us of your love and care for us in Christ and strengthen us to show that to those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.